I, I was already starting to think about this when a friend who was a vegetarian activist, a famous vegetarian activist in San Francisco, died of cancer. And I just thought, this is so weird. She was so healthy. She was a bicycle activist. She exercised every day. She was young. She was still in her 40s. She was beautiful, you know. The cancer is so terrible. How could a vegetarian die of cancer, right? And then more and more and more people in our cute little town where everybody would Welcome to the Earthshaking Conversations podcast. I'm the host, Clarina Paquet. Today we have a very spe- special guest. Her name is Giselle Besson. And welcome. Hi. Pleasure <laughs> to be here. Yeah, so today I've you are from the account Recovering Vegan. I saw you on t- on Twitter like uh, a few weeks ago and I really loved your content and I'm very happy to have you here today. Thank you. You get me first. I have five requests for a podcast in the past two days. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) So to start with, I just wanted to know a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up, uh, well, I was born in Washington, D.C., into kind of a political family, um, right near the White House. And... um, I, my family uh, moved to Washington, well, after Washington, D.C., we moved to Wilmington, Delaware, Um, same neighborhood as Joe Biden, actually, he was a neighbor, and my dad knew him, and he used to even come to the house, and I worked on his campaign when I was a little kid, when I was 10, and uh, we lived in a house behind a a ranch, uh, kind of a suburban house, but, you know, in the 1960s, you were starting to see that place where the suburban and urban met each other with farmland being sold off and developed into developments. And we were in a very small development that was part of a farmland. So I had cows in my backyard. <laughs> and if there was a big storm, sometimes uh, the fence would break and the cows would come into our yard. And they were really close. I mean, so close that I was used to feeding them apples and and walking through the cow pasture and avoiding the cow patties uh, on my way to school. So, um, and uh, my father was, he grew up rural during the Great Depression, and he was kind of a a well-educated redneck, I guess you'd say. Uh, He knew how to hunt and fish, and he went hunting all winter long and would come back with game. Uh, A lot of it was birds. Uh, We'd bring the birds in the backyard, and we had to pluck them. That's what I did. I learned how to clean and gut a bird as a little kid. And we also went fishing every single vacation. And my dad taught me how to fish and how to clean a fish and how to kill a fish. And we ate a lot of game, a lot of game, mostly game, I think. And I just grew up knowing, wow, you got to chew and chew. Man, that game is tough. You know, it's tough. It's chewy. Uh, Tastes... You know, I mean, getting regular meat from the market, it was always kind of a treat because it was much more tender and you didn't have mm-hmm. to spit out the buckshot when you were eating. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so, that's how you know you grew up hunting when you chew really carefully around all those bones and little pieces of buckshot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, my dad only hunt partridge, but because we have cows, there wasn't really a, a point. Of right, hunting sure. anything else, you know, just shoot them in the backyard. 
Wow, it's so like vegans don't like that. <laughs> Sorry, vegans don't like hearing that. <laughs> yeah. So, how did your ve- uh, your like journey to veganism start? Uh, in the 1980s, I moved to San Francisco to go to college, and and then. Um, started working in journalism at magazines and the neighborhood I lived in the mission which is this really left political activist neighborhood um, has a, a very famous grocery store food co-op called the Rainbow Market and um, the Rainbow only sold vegetarian food it has a, a cheese selection but I would say that 90 99% of what was in that store was plant-based and so just by default, because my local market didn't sell meat, I became a vegetarian. And, um, I mean, I did occasionally fish or, or I can't remember eating meat. And I didn't eat meat until I moved to France. So um, around 1999, I decided to research my French and Italian ancestry. And I did ancestral research and then traveled to Europe alone for an entire summer and while I was there I met and fell in love with a French agronomist Mm. and I lived in the south of France in Provence and also on the coast of Provence and the Languedoc and uh, learned how to speak French, learned how to cook French food, learned about French food from this agricultural expert, learned how to cook from his 90 year old grandmother and I learned a lot about authentic <clears throat> European Mediterranean food, and it was very heavily. Now that I know about the keto diet, it was a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mostly meat, very high in fat, um, not a lot of vegetables, uh, just salad mostly. Um, vegetables only eaten in season. Foods only eaten if they grow nearby in the region that you live and this is in the 20th, 20th century, 21st century. They they still are this way there. People don't really want to eat coconut or bananas or pineapple or something that doesn't come from their heritage. Mm-hmm. In yeah, that no, country. that totally makes sense. So it was very local. Um, the farms were really small and really beautiful, and they smelled good, and the cows were treated really well, and the meat was amazing, and, and so I learned how to eat foie gras, and I ate, uh, the first meal I ate when I met him was escargot, mm. and I wrote a book, which I still haven't published, called Escargot for Breakfast, because that was my first breakfast, uh, was literally escargot, which were garden snails. And um, in France, it's very common. It's a meal of the poor. You just go pluck the snails out of the garden, and you, you feed them cornmeal and clean them out and fatten them up. And then, then they're cooked with garlic and butter. And <laughs> I thought it was disgusting. But that was <laughs> my introduction to real French cuisine. Man, they're not eating croissants. They're eating things that you can forage. There's a lot of foraging. It still happens in France. Uh, mushrooms, uh, blueberries in the summertime, wild greens like dandelions. Uh, but they're not so much into vegetables here. They like uh, eating uh, the fruits of the sea, fruit de mer, the, the coquilles, the little shells, the shellfish, and the sea urchins, which is the sea urchins. And we actually even went diving and 
gathering urchin, and he taught me how to crack it open and eat it raw, right there. Wow. It was like sushi. And we have urchins all over the beach here in California. Nobody picks them up. Nobody eats them. Yeah, that's very interesting. So when did you become a vegan? I became a vegan uh, as soon as I got back from France. So I came back to the United States. And the first thing I did is I went to a grocery store to go shopping, right? And as soon as I walked in the meat department, just the smell of it was like, oh, what is this? This smells so bad. And I looked at, and we're talking 2002. So the, this kind of food revolution that we've seen in the United States and North America and, and even most of the industrialized world in the last 20 years had not happened yet at that time. And, you know, the, the, the quality of, of what was in the grocery store was limited and not very good. And that was just how it was. And I took one look at it and I smelled it and I thought, oh, I don't know if I can eat this. I, I got spoiled in France and the cheeses weren't as good, you know, the milk, none of it, the butter. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started reading a lot about agriculture and farming and I read um, Fast Food Nation. I read um, books by John Robbins and Diet for a New Planet and Francis Moore LaPay. And that started making me, I remember just reading a passage about the inside of a slaughterhouse and um, reading about factory farming. And this was before YouTube. So, you know, and before all of these documentary films, but I was nauseated. I just mm -hmm. thought, I can't eat this. I can't, I can't continue doing this. But I was starting to think about getting a, a career in food and changing to be a chef, I started uh, investigating and visiting chef schools and culinary schools. And it was very expensive to go to culinary school. It would be like $20,000 a year. And I thought, well, let me try it first um, with a less expensive school. And I saw this ad for this raw vegan cooking school. <laughs> and it was so much cheaper to go to the raw vegan cooking school just for a weekend, uh, like a four-day weekend. And I thought, oh, try this out. Let me see how I like it. You know, this is kind of cool. I'll just try a cooking school. So I went to this raw vegan cooking class. And after those four days, the food was so delicious. The people were so beautiful. And so, I don't know. I mean, it was a very spiritual crowd. And I was, mm -hmm. I loved my teacher and, and the teacher, you know, just, I just idolized her. I thought she was just an amazing person. And I, I just went cold turkey overnight, went vegan. Wow. And so what were the immediate effects of going vegan? Uh, the immediate effects when you first do it, you, you feel amazing. I mean, I felt this, this lightness. Uh, I felt a oneness with, with everything. Um, it was, a, a, you know, for someone on a spiritual path at that time in my life, I was doing a lot of Ashtanga yoga, a lot of yoga. Um, visiting ashrams and meditating and and this I felt was you know part of my spiritual path and mm -hmm. um, what I didn't understand I think at that time was the connection between the vegan the vegan diet and religious cults and um, how there was a kind of a cult 
it's hard to, I don't, you know, I really like these people so much. I don't want to accuse them of, of being a cult. Uh, mm-hmm. I still have lots of friends who are vegans, but there is a, a close tie between a certain religious cults and yeah. all over the world. I saw this in France. I've seen it in, in other places and, um, a very strict vegetarian or vegan diet. Interesting. So you think there's a correlation between like religious cults and like veg- uh, vegetarian vegan diets? There absolutely is. And there's and plenty of, um, there are people who've written about this. Yeah. Interesting. Cause I do, I do have some friends who are vegetarian and who are, who are religious. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just like a culture thing. But do you think that veganism itself is like a cult, like not religious, but just like culty? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the early days of vegetarianism and veganism were done with a pure intention. Again, you know, part of yoga, a part of, of cre- creating a cleaner body for reaching states of, of um samadhi, you know, oneness with the world, uh, you know, this idea of ahimsa, nonviolence towards mm-hmm. all beings, not even, you know, in, in Buddhism, you don't even kill a bug. You wow. don't kill anything. In fact, I remember when I was traveling in Thailand, someone, one time I killed a mosquito. I went like this and it's like, I was so proud of myself for getting rid of this mosquito. And this Thai man looked at me like, no, 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 never kill anything you're not going to eat. <laughs> and, um, in France, too, they didn't, if you had a bug, you know, crawling around, you picked it up gently and you took it outside. You didn't kill it. And I think in these these older cultures, there was always this, this realization that there's a web of life and that insects are not terrible. They're part of of that, that we need them. Um, they're not something to be eradicated with poisons, you know? So that's actually really beautiful. Getting (laughs) back to, so, you know, there are so many aspects to Ahimsa, nonviolence, um, the, the, these kind of core values in say the Hare Krishna's, um, and Osho commune, um, Sivananda, which I, I was part of for a while, the Sivananda Yoga Ashram. I mean, all of these things have a, a, a really high intention. I think it, it somehow got co-opted at some point and mm-hmm. became something else. And what I see veganism now as is this very ugly, uh, it's, it's um, divisive, divisive. It's, it's full of um, bullying and and... I mean, the bullying that I've experienced and other people in the carnivore movement or keto uh, doctors, um, Jean Buxton, who recently wrote the book, The Plant-Based Con, she's just traumatized right now. She doesn't even want to be on social media because she's been bullied so much. Um, another mm-hmm. one of the vegan, uh, excuse me, anti-vegans, former vegans who come out and started eating meat, um, Kim, Kim Mitnick, are you familiar with her? No, um, I'm not. She's also from Southern California, and she calls herself Eat Meat, Be Happy. And she's this, you know, gorgeous yoga teacher, really buxom, you know, super beautiful woman. And uh, she's always eating big chunks of meat. <laughs> and she's been bullied. She's received death threats. 
So, you know, how did we get from ahimsa, nonviolence, to this kind of militant, um, anarchist kind of, like, wow, weird, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Frightening, even. And I think that there's some, some sort of other agenda behind that. Yeah, so let me... So I've had a theory about veganism. It's something that I've researched a lot because, like I said, I had my best friend who was vegan. And I know mm -hmm. a lot of vegans. I went to school in, like, Toronto, which was, like, the San Francisco of Canada. <laughs> <Truly>. <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of vegans there. Um, what I find is that this is my own personal opinion. I just think that there's an agenda. There's forces behind it that are truly evil and not for mm -hmm. anyone's best interest. And they have three ways of co-opting people um, through veganism. The first one is the animal welfare. The second one is nutrition. So all of the propaganda that you hear that re red meat is bad for you, eat margarine, not butter, which literally makes no sense because margarine is like plastic. And then the third one is environment. And this is the one that I think everyone's kind of hopping on right now. They blame cows for the planet and... And it's just the reason why they want us to get go vegan, in my opinion, is because vegans are easier to control. I saw it with my friend who was like super left-leaning when she was vegan. And as soon as she started eating meat, her ideas started ch to change radically. Like just How did what they change? Because mine changed too. My politics, my view of life, everything changed when I started eating meat. It was weird. Really? Yeah, like mm -hmm. it, like what I found with her is that it was it was slow, but she ended up going from like, you know, like lefty type of stuff, like feminism and all that stuff, to being like anti-feminist, pretty right-leaning, which mm -hmm. was very interesting because when I met her, she was totally the opposite of who she is now, and it was it was very interesting. <laughs> And, and what triggers that? Is it the community that you surround yourself with in, in one extreme or the other? Or does the food that we eat actually affect us to that level? I think it's a mixture of both. Because, like, the carnivores and, like, the meat eaters, like, we're, like, right wing. Like, I wouldn't even say right wing. We're, like, center, right, like, people, right? Like, we're, like most of us are all like farm people or like you know fitness people and we have more i believe right right wing politics what is considered mm -hmm. today as right wing politics it would have been left in the 60s but that's besides the point <laughs> right is the new left and left is the new right yeah it's literally it's crazy like i was making videos on tiktok about how i used to be pretty much a democrat socialist of canada like it the NDP party, like Bernie Sanders of Canada party. And, and I went, I like dipped and I went to the conservative party. It was, it's pretty crazy, but I don't know. I, I think it does have to do with meat. I think that you're easier to control um, if you eat plants mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. they always say, I think that meat is the reason why we even have consciousness in the first place. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, they definitely increase the size of our brains. Yeah. That's documented. The more meat we ate, the bigger our brains got, the bigger our brains got, the more meat we were able to catch and the bigger game that we ate. 
I mean, think about it. It's really easy to, to grab a sea urchin off the beach or dig a clam or uh, find an oyster. That's nonviolent. It's simple. It's just gathering. But going after bigger and bigger fish, uh, going those deep water fish like the salmon, with the or, or the the mammal fish that have lots of that good body fat, the omega three, going after the bigger game with the the more fat with the omega three with the monounsaturated fats. That's um, what increased our brain, and that takes intelligence and hard work, physical prowess, and tools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and then cooking skills and butchering skills and, and, you know, the further you go down the rabbit hole, it's like, wow, the more intelligent you are, the richer you are, the more meat you can eat. Yeah. And then obviously agriculture, like that was a huge revolution for mm-hmm. humans, right? Because before we Takes only hunted. intelligence too and hard work agriculture. It, it really does. It really <laughs> does. It's very an interesting, it's a fun field, but it takes a lot of smarts because <laughs> The people who don't have smarts, they don't last long in farming. They, <laughs> it's hard to keep an animal alive, contrary to most belief. <laughs> it's true. I've only raised chickens, but uh, boy, we put a lot of work and a lot of love into raising our chickens. And when they get sick, you know, you have to figure out what to do. And I remember trying to save a chicken's life and, and my friend and I were getting antibiotics, you know, all these things you're against all of a sudden when your chicken's dying, you're getting antibiotics, you're, you're doing anything you can. You're, and, uh, and I remember at one point we were spending all of this money to, to save the life of this chicken, egg laying chicken. And my friend George said, Oh my goodness, it's just a chicken. You know, you could buy one for $10 at the grocery store. <laughs> but when it's your chicken. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, I would know that because I, well, I, I had chickens for eight years. I never gave them antibiotics or spent any money on them if they were sick, but I would like put them, I would isolate them because chickens are um, little right. cannibals. And I had one batch of my chickens that were like eating each other. And my favorite chicken, mm-hmm. you're going to love her name. Her name was Putin. <laughs> <laughs> Not Putin. Putin. <laughs> yeah, Putin. Anyways, like the like the Canadian food. So uh, she got, she was getting beat up by the other chickens. And she had like this really bad like butt infection. And I like took her, I put her in the chicken hospital and she even started laying eggs, but without any shells. So it was like eggs with like a little thin, like mm. thing around her. Anyways, we had to put her down because she was sick. But because it like I wasn't able to save her, but I tried. I tried. Um, I got her out of there, and then eventually she had she had to die. She lived a few weeks after that, but well, she had to die because she had an infection. Right? You know, a lot of these um, figures of speech come from farm oh, yeah. lore and raising chickens. <laughs> so getting back to what you started to talk about, this this sort of darker agenda of veganism. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't start to see that until I woke up. And it what what sort of the the moment for me, I, I was already starting to think about this when a friend who was a ve- vegetarian activist, a famous vegetarian activist in San Francisco died of cancer. 
And I just thought, this is so weird. She was so healthy. She was a bicycle mm. activist. She exercised every day. She was young. She was still in her 40s. She was beautiful, you know. The cancer is so terrible. How could a vegetarian die of cancer, right? And then more and more and more people in our cute little town where everybody was a vegetarian. At this point, I was living in Marin County in a town that has a really good health food store that's mostly mostly vegetarian, mostly vegan, and almost everybody in town is mostly vegetarian and mostly vegan. And the, even the ice cream store has mostly plant-based ice creams. I mean, we're really into it, and we really thought we were doing the best thing for our health and for the environment and for spirituality. And I started noticing that people were dying, and they were dying mostly of, of cancer. Um, but then the real wake-up call was when a girl who was a yoga teacher in our community was suffering from such severe depression that she jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. And we started seeing suicides. Wow. And it was like, what's going on? How could this? Nobody put it together that this healthy vegan diet was possibly the reason why everybody was so sick. And instead of putting that together, because of the cult-like mentality, people were saying, well, I'm not veganing enough. <laughs> oh my God, no. <laughs> I must vegan harder, <laughs> you know? So it wasn't just vegan diet. You had to do Hippocrates. You had to go to the Hippocrates Institute in Puerto Rico and do a vegan juice cleanse. And one of my friends came back from working, volunteering in the Hippocrates Institute and, you know, the healthiest person, the healthy, healthy, healthiest one, she came back from Hippocrates and had liver cancer. Oh my and God. she died very quickly of liver cancer. And everybody said, well, gosh, it would have killed her even sooner if she hadn't been such a good vegan. And then That's Steve Jobs died of pancreatic cancer that moved into his liver. And everybody said, oh, he tried everything. He was such a good juice cleanser, fruitarian, vegan. I mean, cancer is such a terrible thing that even these people mm -hmm. who are so clean are getting cancer. I mean, that's the kind of, of, of blinders. And I call it vegan tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. This is where you live in this vegan echo chamber where all your friends are vegan. You hang out in vegan restaurants, vegan juice bars, vegan grocery stores, vegan neighborhoods, vegan communities. You go to vegan potlucks. You go to vegan music festivals where all the food is vegan and there are people giving lectures about veganism. And you go to vegan, you know, a vegetarian uh, cook-offs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just all around you. You can't get away from it. And you're not getting the truth. And I didn't get the truth until I got on Twitter. Mm. I got off Facebook and my little echo chamber with all my friends. And I started spending more time on Twitter. And the reason that happened is I was in a car accident. And um, I was just so severely injured in the accident. All I could do was pretty much, you know, like lie down on the couch and scroll. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I lost my ability to even use my fingers and type. So I could only wow. dictate using Siri. And I was very ill. And when I got my first MRI... That was really when the light bulb went on. I, I saw the inside of my body, and I knew at that point that something was wrong. Something was wrong with my health, but I couldn't. I was at that point about 56 years old, 
and um, not quite in menopause yet, considered, you know, because it was slender, people thought I was healthy, but I really wasn't. I had severe mm. acne all the time. I had candida all the time. I had urinary tract infections. My joints ached. I had um, migraine headaches, severe. I had severe menstrual problems, uh, bleeding problems. I had chronic anemia. And the list goes on and on and on of all the health problems I had, which were just sort of these things where you show up at the doctor and they can do nothing for you. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what's causing this. And so in the vegan echo chamber, you and your friends who are also all having the same health problems, by the way, start Interesting. saying, well, it must be, you know, try my supplement. And so your vegan friends are selling you their supplement. They're running all these MLMs, multi-level marketing, <laughs> pyramid scheme type, you know, vitamin companies where they're mm-hmm. insisting that their supplement uh, will cure you of all these problems you're having as a vegan in the vegan, mm-hmm. vegan ethical shaper. And more people are getting sick and more dying and more jumping in and killing themselves. And nobody sees it. And, um, so when I saw my MRI, the first thing I did was I cried and that was because I realized that was sort of when the light bulb went on and I thought this, this happened because of, of my diet. Mm -hmm. This must've been because of what I was eating, what I wasn't eating. And I started researching all of these different mysterious diseases that were showing up in my spine. And one is called myelopathy myelopathy, M-Y-E-L-O-P-A-T-H-Y. Well, myelopathy is also known as the vegan's disease. Mm. There's a kind of myelopathy called vegetarian myelopathy. Google it. And the first thing that will come up is an article by Dr. Greger, the famous vegan doctor, Mr. Plant-Based Doctor. This is this article is back uh, over a decade ago. Then he was admitting that the vegan diet or vegetarian diet was so uh, deficient in vitamin B12 that it could, in rare cases, cause this spinal disease, this spinal abnormality. Um, but you know, now we're seeing more and more long-term vegans. It's, it's kind of a ex- social experiment. I mean, we never had this before in human history. There was starvation. There was malnutrition. There were mm-hmm. kids starving in Africa with diseases like beriberi, where their belly would blow it out, or you had spina bifida, which would happen when a, a mother didn't have enough vitamin B, B vitamins, uh, night, and, uh, and the baby would be born with a deformed spine. But now you're seeing these diseases, these rare diseases of malnutrition in the first world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we certainly uh, don't lack any food. <laughs> we don't yeah. lack food. We don't lack options. <laughs> Everything is here. Why? Why? In a world of infinite choices where I can go, I mean, right now where I live, I can go to Sprouts, Whole Foods, three different grocery stores, a butcher, uh, a giant meat superstore. I have Target. I have, you know, all of these stores all around me with I don't even have to farm. I don't have to grow anything. I don't have to hunt. I don't have to pluck a bird. All I have to do is, is shop. And it's cheap, really, when you think about it. Food is cheap uh, in the modern world. And and why would we voluntarily deny ourselves the most nutritious foods and replace mm-hmm. them with 
the garbage most, uh, deficient uh, yeah and that could only happen because of, of, a, of a campaign a marketing campaign i mean i think it's been portrayed to us as a bottom-up revolution that the consumers are demanding this and asking for it but i you know i'm writing a book about my experience and and i think when you connect all the dots mm-hmm yeah, like I've done a lot of research on this. I love rabbit holes. I love conspiracy theories. And you know, like give me more it's conspiracy theories. Not a conspiracy theory. theory. You're, you're, I know. You're stepping back and getting a bird's eye view. And because you eat meat. Yeah, like I have. Mine is working clearly. Like right now, I haven't had this much focus. And my, I feel like I'm on a wonder drug, like some sort of limitless pill. After mm-hmm. eating nothing but meat for four days, unbelievable. I know I'm doing it for Lent. <laughs> I told what? my mom, like I'm going like fully like carnivore, like not m- <laughs> not Lent. even cheese, like fully like. <laughs> and the reason why is because I'm getting uh, one of my calves slaughtered, my calf, so the one one mm-hmm. of the ones that I own, for myself and to sell to other people, my friends and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to eat meat from the store because I find meat from the store quite revolting. And my dad has no more meat to give me because he ran out because my mom was eating all the meat because of her, like, autoimmune disease. She went on this diet and for six weeks she was only eating hamburger and only, like, ruminant meat, uh, ruminant meat, salt and water. That's it. She wasn't eating pork. She, went she wasn't on the eating chicken. Diet. Yeah, she yeah. went on the lion diet, and and she it worked for her. So, anyways, so anyways, we ran out of meat, <laughs> so now I have to slaughter my animal. So I'm doing that in February. We're gonna have it him back just in time for Lent, thankfully. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do that, and it's gonna be a lot better, I think. And hopefully, I can focus more. Yeah, like I'm always slouchy when I eat a lot of carbs, like. <laughs> So you eat meat, but you still eat carbs. You don't do a ketogenic diet. Not yet, no. I, I've I've hopped on the bandwagon. I've hopped out. Sometimes I'm just like, I just want sugar. Like, I I have a hard time getting past, like, the withdrawal. It's and really last year cool. I was... So last year I was doing it, but then I was going up north snowmobiling with my dad every weekend. So then I would do it for five days. And when you start on the meat diet you feel very like like drunk ish mm-hmm. you feel like you're missing something and like i'm such a big sugar eater that i every single for five days i felt drunk and then i would go back eat more sugar and then be still withdrawing so then i was like okay hey, this isn't this isn't working but now mm-hmm. my parents are also doing it to, so at that time it was just me not even my mom but mm-hmm. now it's everyone who's doing it for lent including my dad i think Hopefully, because I don't want to be the only one eating meat. That was pretty depressing my to see my mom. My friends in California would be so grossed out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of why my health, I, I've been having all these um, autoimmune flares and feeling terrible is over the high. I just spent a month visiting all my friends in the Bay Area, all my vegan friends, and staying with them and uh, going to a lot of parties and potlucks and I tried to eat 
some protein while I was there, but I ended up eating a lot of plants. Interesting. And Do you think birthday cake you... and stuff? That's <laughs> well. <laughs> everyone sent me home. I have like my boss gave me like this gigantic pack of chocolates, and I'm like, I'm not gonna have this sitting in my house. That's why I said I'm starting at Lent and not like right now because <laughs> I have to finish it. You know. <laughs> I have to get rid of the sugar and I'm not going to throw it out. <laughs> so, um, so while we're talking about the, the cult of veganism, mm-hmm. we've certainly seen this ramp up in the last couple of years, ever since large, well-funded companies have been trying to convince consumers to, to buy fake meat. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a lot of it. And so there are, you know, I don't think that agendas or conspiracies are evil. I don't think there are a bunch of people getting together in a big, I mean, I hope not. There's a bunch of evil guys sitting around a conference table. And how can we kill off as many people as fast as possible? I, I, you know, the easiest way to kill somebody is with a fork, <laughs> with some tasty <laughs> food on it. You know, you don't have mm-hmm. to just give them bad food well that's exactly what they're doing (laughs) even us meat eaters like the stuff that's in the grocery store not the meat i would say like everything else like look at any ingredient list ever there's all these random ingredients that you don't even know where it comes from seed oils are this like horrible thing i like I kicked out seed oils out of my diet. I was like, I can't do this anymore. Well, we thought they were healthy at first. And I remember when I used to buy those seed oils in health food stores and they're still in health food stores. Um, Mm -hmm. And we thought they were healthier. Uh, And I remember seeing those seed oils in France and my friend who was the agronomist said, oh no, that's that's just a cheap oil. You want good olive oil. Mm Mm-hmm. And he would take me to, and he said, most olive oil wasn't even any good. Yeah. And yeah. you have to get the really good olive oil. And so, I mean, everything was always a scavenger hunt looking for good food. And that was even in France, in this agricultural area. The idea, I mean, the French know that food is about ingredients and they pride themselves on finding the best ones. It's sort of, uh, you know, the best winery, the best olive oil, the best source Mm -hmm. of anchovies or whatever it is um that's that's a status in the culture to find that source it have your own little sort of private relationship with a farm or a garden and i think we're you know you're talking about it i think that's starting to happen now uh more and more um probably all over the world as people are looking for the best sources and yeah. even if those sources are private one-on-one relationships with farmers or if that source is I grow it and then I provide it to my, my friends. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's wonderful. I think it's great that we're, we're coming full circle back to that knowledge. Exactly. And that's why I started, I don't know if you know about my business or my company, but it's essentially a marketplace to sell your products to hmm. like strangers. And the reason why I started it is because there is no, there's nothing right now. Like people will tell me, oh, there's this, there's that. Yes, 
there are little like farmers markets and that's great mm -hmm. but there's nothing global like someone like me who lives in down in not downtown toronto but like near toronto i want to go really quickly to get like some fresh meat or some fresh eggs or whatever and i don't know any farmers you go on the internet there's there's nothing so i mm -hmm. started basically my, my marketplace yeah because it's i think it's the next consumer trend honestly like i think this is going to be the next fad but a fad that stays because it's actually mm -hmm. healthy and it's not like produced by the globalists because the vegan diet you know we have bill gates pushing it i believe i don't i don't know like <sighs> I you would don't hope that there's. Him, huh? Sorry, <laughs> you don't trust him, huh? No, I, I absolutely <clears throat> do not trust Bill Gates and his ideas. But <laughs> um, I think that there is like an agenda to control us. I don't necessarily think they're gonna kill us all, but I think it's it's about control. And what's the easiest way to control is when you have a monopoly on food. Mm -hmm. And they have a monopoly on plant agriculture. That's what I always tell my TikTok people. I'm like, they have a monopoly on plant agriculture. Eat meat. And then everyone will tell me, well, also, th they do have a monopoly on meat. And I'm like, yes and no. Because, yes, you can buy your meat from the local grocery store. But if you go and buy meat from my dad or you buy meat from your friend, they wouldn't even know. So there, there's, way, there's not really a monopoly on on meat like there is on uh on plant agriculture because plant agriculture the way that they kind of keep the producers is they sell them these gmo seeds mm -hmm. but the catch is you have to sell them back those seeds because if not you're gonna get sued and that's how they have this monopoly about, i didn't know about that about the seeds i mean i know that when you use the gmo seeds you need chemicals that are also made by the same company Mm -hmm. I, I started to make some realizations about uh, herbicide as a, I, right around the time that I dumped veganism, I was living in a farm town in Sonoma County um, in Northern California and close to many farms. And I was living on a farm and growing my own organic vegetables. I had this great soil there but what i noticed is the winery next door was not organic and mm. they were spraying their fields with herbicides and where the herbicide would drift over on our property the plants were stunted and i couldn't get anything to grow and whenever that drifted over you know so if i could the further I was away from the drift, the healthier my plants were. But what I found is I just kept putting mycorrhizae and, and inoculants into the soil, trying to build up the, the mycorrhizae, the microorganisms in the soil to make the soil healthier. And mm -hmm. it would be healthy for a little while, and then that would die out. And then I would have to put it back in. And it was just this pointless exercise. And when I was living in an area that was isolated and away from any wineries away from any farms and away from any pesticide drift where we were um, uh, uh, surrounded with open space with forest my plants were healthy mm -hmm. and I took, in fact I took some of the same plants from the healthy area and moved them over to the other property and they died they struggled there and I started realizing wow this this 
this stuff that they're spraying is, is really an antibiotic. It kills the mycorrhizae in the soil. It, kill, it kills that fungus, mm-hmm. those, those micro. I mean, but you don't, most people don't realize until they study permaculture or biodynamic farming is that the reason why compost helps nourish your soil is the bacteria in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bacteria. bacteria. Also, in the, in the uh, fertilizer that we get the manures from the animals, when we put that in the soil, it's that bacteria that helps produce, you know, helps break down uh, everything in the soil and make it rich. And you can even take little bits of that bacteria and make compost tea. You can ferment it in water and just spray that on your plants, on the on the leaves, or water them with it, and it's just as good as if you gave them compost. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a miracle, right? So what's the reverse of that? Think about it. Monocrop agriculture. I've said it long, like a long time Giving ago. Giving them an a, a antibiotic that kills all of that mycorrhizae and mm-hmm. then creating plants that can only survive in that dead soil and then selling the seeds to those plants and creating a monopoly. But it's worse than that because the other plants struggle. Mm-hmm. It gets even worse than that because, you know, when they say cows create climate change and all that stuff. Bogus. Completely opposite it's so, of the Even when you have cows in a feedlot or cows in a barn, it's not even true. But anyways, what they're doing right now is they're... The problem is not climate change. I don't really believe in climate change. Like, I think the climate changes. But, like, we just went through a blizzard in Canada. And mm-hmm. everyone was freaking out. And everyone was being, like, it was hyping up. Oh, my God. It's going to be, like, the worst blizzard ever. And then I spent all summer listening to the news. And they were saying 25 degrees, which is, like, I, I, w- I don't even know what it is in, in Fahrenheit. But it's not hot for Canada in, in the summer. They were like, there's a heat warning in effect. And I'm like, what heat? Like, where is the heat? You know, I would love for it. To, like, I would love to have heat. There was no heat all summer. And there was like, they were hyping it up. And then when the blizzard came, they were like, this is going to be the worst storm ever. And I'm like, we're in Canada. Like, what are you guys talking about? And they're being so absolutely dramatic. But if anything is going to turn the earth into a very hot sphere it's monocrop agriculture it's killing the soil because what happens is when you harvest okay so this is what happens in the natural cycle of carbon okay the cow eats grass okay the cow poops on the grass and then that fertilizer has nutrients as well as the bacterias and the nutrients goes into the grass And then she'll eat the grass again and then have those nutrients. And it's a cycle, right? Um, What happens with monocrop agriculture is that we, number one, totally strip the soil of literally everything by plowing, by harrowing, by seeding, by fertilizing. And then the fertilizer we put on is chemical fertilizer. It's nitrogen. And it's great to grow plants but it doesn't put nutrients back into the soil 
That's why vegans are having such a hard time. Maybe vegans in the 30s and the 40s were okay because there was nutrients in the vegetables, mm. but the vegetables of today have less or and no. less nutrients. They're depleted from nutrients. So eating a like a broccoli today, you'd have to eat like 10 broccolis to get what you had. I mean, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but you know, you had to eat a lot more broccolis today than you would have had in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s because of well, monocrop also, agriculture. We didn't, we didn't eat vegetables year round mm-hmm. until recently. When I was growing up, the only vegetables available in the wintertime in a grocery store, which we very rarely ever shopped in a grocery store. We mostly grew, my dad hunted, you know, and we went to the farmer's market every weekend. And this was a real farmer's market with a livestock mm-hmm. auction and auctioneers and there were cows in there and stuff. It was a hardcore farmer's market, you know, with uh, Pennsylvania Dutch Amish farmers mm-hmm. and Mennonites. And uh, that's where where I shop when I was a kid, but we didn't have vegetables year round. In wintertime, no. you had carrots and maybe potatoes, onions. Cabbage was a vegetable in the wintertime. And this, this idea of having strawberries year round and blueberries year round, it's very recent. And most of that is grown in the Southern hemisphere and it's flown using mm-hmm. large amounts of, of resources, petroleum resources, to send these, quote, healthy fruits and vegetables. Even though that in itself is is super bad for the planet, then mm-hmm. you have the fact that the human body was not designed, most of us, we're not, our ancestors did not eat vegetables 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. They ate them when they grew. And so exactly. you had time between when you, you know, in the wintertime, you mostly ate meat and, and animals because you could grow them indoors in a barn in cold weather. And, and you and could you, freeze them. Right. And you could, well, later you could freeze them, but we only have mm-hmm. had refrigeration and freezing. I mean, my mother, who grew up in the 30s, they had an ice box with a block of ice mm-hmm. in it. And um, there, there just wasn't, you know, you kept things in your, in your basement in your root cellar and you kept root vegetables there and you canned in the summertime, which was more like cooked vegetables, you canned your vegetables and your fruits in, in mason jars. Mm-hmm. If you were good at canning, you had fruits and vegetables in the winter, but, but not a lot. And they certainly weren't like raw and uh, full of roughage and fiber. And I think what you, you know, you have now is this, the, the body never gets a break mm-hmm. from eating all of this fiber, eating all these vegetables and vegetables. This is something I didn't learn until I got on Twitter and became part of the keto and, and carnivore community is, is vegetables don't want to be eaten. Plants don't want to be eaten. They form they toxins, plant toxins. And when mm-hmm. I started saying this to my vegan friends, do you know that vegetables are toxic? <laughs> they would just say, what, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? You're eating meat, anything, vegetables are poisonous? Yeah. Are you crazy? So in small quantities, like the amounts that we would eat when we grew tomatoes in the summertime and you got ripe tomatoes for about six weeks, maybe you had your ripe tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the time you ate cooked tomatoes that were canned, but not 
as many. I mean, now we have tomatoes in this store year round. And um, this is just not something that the human body is used to. Vegetables and fruits from, and grains and beans from all over the world with, mm -hmm. with, with chemicals, phytochemicals in them that our ancestors never saw, that our DNA has not evolved to thrive on, that we can't tolerate. And I personally think this might have a role in autoimmunity in autoimmune diseases and 100%. it might be one of the reasons why, if not the primary reason why um, autoimmune diseases are reversing with these lion diets. Because what is the lion diet? The lion, ha lion diet has no fiber, it has no phytochemicals, and it has no pesticides or herbicides. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, you're not spraying pesticides on cattle, are you? No. We're not. <laughs> you yeah. spray herbicides on the grass that they eat? They No, no. <laughs> you like, wouldn't do it, that because they eat weeds. You want the weeds. Exactly. And like cows are very, they're grown. Cows are, honestly, it blows my mind. It blows my mind when they tell me cows are bad for the environment. And they, I'm like, are you guys insane? We have cows <laughs> in the mountains where you could not grow a vegetable to save your life. The cow, I went to BC last summer, which is like, I guess it'd be on your side um, of Canada. And there's these big, beautiful mountains. And you saw all these cows in the mountain eating. You could not go there and grow some vegetables. You couldn't go there and, and put some crops on the ground. Like, are you insane? No. And people don't realize most cattle. They can walk where we can't. Exactly. Like, yeah. Most cattle actually are in like pretty random places. Like my dad has, it's called the forest. It's not really a forest because the cows have destroyed all the trees except for like the big ones because mm -hmm. they like scratched themselves on it and, and it, whoops, it went down, um, my bad. And so it's pretty hollow for being a forest, but the cows will go there and eat grass for like three weeks and you know, they'll have their calves there. They'll go hide there in the summer whenever it's too hot for them and you like you can't grow some vegetables in there like the mm -hmm. best that will grow is blueberries if the cows aren't eating all the blueberries that is of course because um, they will <laughs> and drink all the maple syrup if they're allowed to but yeah it's it's just so ridiculous that they're trying so hard to push this and that's why i launched like the cows for the earth campaign because i was like mm -hmm. are you guys stupid like why would you become vegan in January when you have to, like, fly in all of your, like, vegetables from, like, Mexico? Like, that makes no sense to me whatsoever because you or have Costa to, like... Costa Rica. Yeah. And all these superfoods. Um, when I was deep into the vegan cult, we were following this guru, David Wolf, who coined the term superfoods. And he was flying around the world and discovering new superfoods and putting them in packages. He became quite wealthy starting a superfood company. And now his products are in stores everywhere. And, you know, he found goji berries, right? And, and there was the goji berry trend and the goji berry juice trend. And then uh, raw cacao was a big thing. And uh, right now, mushrooms are really big. All of these... Um, 
mushroom powders and adaptogens, you know, so mm -hmm. people are constantly looking for the latest get-rich-quick scheme and discovering yet a new superfood. But although these foods may be superfoods, like if you're Chinese, maybe it's great to eat goji berries because your ancestors ate them. But can I eat a goji berry? Mm -hmm. uh, did my ancestors have any exposure to goji berries? And are goji berries actually going to make me sick? I, yeah, and we have a superfood. Powerful nightshades. They're not good for arthritis. I've learned. We have a superfood. They're called cows. <laughs> <laughs> it's meat. <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Maybe I should start a company and just sell steak and be like, "This is the latest superfood, you guys. Eat you this know what stuff." What I had for lunch? I put on Twitter my lunch, which was I still haven't finished it yet. It was a huge steak, a big fatty steak that I cooked in bacon grease and I put bacon, crunched up bacon on top mm. of it and a big pat of butter. And then I took Himalayan crystal salt and put a bunch of salt on it. And I that posted looks... that on Twitter and I got all this, yay. And then somebody says, more butter. You didn't put enough butter on it. And I wrote, you know, my caption was heart attack on a plate. Oh, but I saw I it. It looked great. Felt so it tasted so delicious that was the thing it was like where's this been all my life oh my god this is really good it was amazing i know and it, it's crazy <laughs> that like people will fall for these trends like my grandma who's like 83 and i love her but like she is dead convinced that margarine is the best thing ever and i want to oh, no. like i just want to shake her and i'm like girl like you need to like wake no. up it's the worst like and it's truly the worst like it's probably why she has arthritis honestly because she's eating all this margarine well it'll give of... her heart disease i excuse me for a minute i have to plug in my computer so i don't uh, i didn't realize it wasn't plugged in oh take a moment here before my power runs out so yeah well margarine uh showed up my mother tells me there was something during the war time in World War II called oleo. Oleo margarine, or they called it oleo, oleo resin. It was, it was a white fat, and it didn't look like butter. So when you got this ration, they were rationing it, and the good butter went to the soldiers to fight the war. Mm -hmm. And, and the people back at home got stuck with the oleo and I had a little packet of yellow coloring and you would mix the coloring in with it by hand and that would turn it yellow so it looked like butter. Mm. And my mom hated that stuff. And we, we, we were kids. She was like, no margarine in our house. We're only eating real butter. And we, we did not get margarine. Everyone else had it in that cool tub. I mean, it, it always seemed like, oh, you go over to your friend's house and they have that sugary cereal or that tub of margarine. Like, they're more progressive. They're more with it. They're eating the latest thing, you know, and you're just eating that old-fashioned butter that mom makes you eat. Yeah, they're you dying know. of cancer. It's just great. <laughs> well, the cancer doesn't happen until much later. Further, way down the line. I mean, the... Food doesn't kill you immediately. It's a slow death. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's why it's hard to make the connection, to connect the dots between what we ate many or were exposed to many, well, it's many, really, many years in the past and how we are today. It's really hard. And this is like 
the sympathy I had for my mom, because, like, I'm very black and white, so I'm like, if I hear of something that's gonna, like, try to help her, or even if it was me who had the autoimmune disease, which I'm sure I will have it eventually, um, like, I want her to try it. And she was like, no, I can't. But it's really hard to actually realize that you're the one who's causing it all along and you just never knew about it, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that was Mich- that's what Michaela Peterson said. She's like, it was hard for me to get on a diet and then see the changes and see like, wow, this is, this is my fault. Like, I'm the reason why mm-hmm. I was sick all this time and I just never knew. Well, but it isn't her fault. She didn't have the information. Exactly. And... They don't want to give our that information. Our grandmothers knew. Our mothers knew. Our grandmothers knew. Our great grandmothers and before that knew. They would all have said to me, "Eat more meat. You're going to get sick if you don't eat meat." They knew. Mm-hmm. And so, they would probably have also said, "Don't eat the don't eat the oleo. Eat the real butter." You know, and I mean the the women had this knowledge and it was handed down from generation to generation and at some point we lost that direct connection with the matriarchy and now it's become let's listen to these experts these doctors <laughs> television doctors and now you know internet doctors and and mm-hmm. stuff we read in the media these statistics and studies and we don't listen to our ancestors and the stories of our ancestors and those. I remember when um, when my my grandmother died, the most, the thing that everybody fought over the most was my grandmother's recipe cards. You know, because <laughs> in the old days you had your own recipes on recipe cards and your little recipe card file, and mm-hmm. that was like the the secrets, the family jewels were that with the recipes. Mm-hmm. You know, and now it's like, well, let's go on to Yumly. People don't even have cookbooks anymore. And mm-hmm. how have those recipes been lost, compromised? Because they're changing because some advertiser or food company wants people eating a particular ingredient or a particular food. And, um, and so cooking from scratch becomes this lost art. And if you want the good cookbooks, you're going to have to go on Amazon and buy old used cookbooks mm-hmm. to try to um, discover. You know, I, I notice that now that I'm switching over to carnivores, like I don't know how to cook meat. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an art. And it's an art I wasn't practicing for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel the same way, and that's why that's why I kind of stopped carnivore because I was like, I've been on it and off of it, and I definitely have a lot of energy, but I'm super bored because like when you eat carbs, you eat carbs like all day long, like a little bit here, a little bit there, and when I started carnivore, I like stopped eating uh, like three times a day. I was only eating once a day, and I was bored that, for the rest yeah. of the time. So then I was chewing like a pack of gum a day because I was bored. And that's probably not the best thing either. But (laughs) I don't know. I find that I have all this energy and I'm not wasting time thinking about food or looking for it or cooking it. And I can do something else Mm -hmm. with that energy, with that resource, that precious resource of time. But I mean, I haven't been on a carnivore diet very long yet. And I don't know 
I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm, you know, I'm still in the very early stages of it. I'm still not convinced it's the way to go. I'm just learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what was the effects of like starting to eat meat? Like, tell us about when you started eating meat again after being a vegan. Um. Well, I <laughs> I was working um, in Silicon Valley for a client, and I my business partner who's vegetarian and I wanted to impress him on first meeting with him. And we took him to this really beautiful restaurant in Palo Alto, Burma, Burma Ruby. It's just a gorgeous restaurant and it's not a hundred percent plant-based, but I think we ordered a couple of vegan dishes. And I mean, that was just what's trendy, you know, what's cool. I mean, usually in Palo Alto, you get together with a bunch of people from Silicon Valley and you might order a seafood dish or something, but mostly you're going to order vegetable dishes. And he came into the restaurant, looked at the food and he said, what? He's from Argentina, by the way. He said, Mm. what is this? This is parrot food. I wouldn't even feed this to my rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) He said that don't they have any meat in here? And uh, so we ordered a dish, I think with the only meat dish had, you know, chicken in it or something. And he ate it very begrudgingly. And he says, that's the last time you're going to make this mistake. And from then on, you know, my client kept taking me out to dinner in all these restaurants and he would order these spreads of meat. I mean, like, like all these different meat dishes. And I had to be polite. You know, I couldn't, Sometimes there wasn't anything for me to eat in these places but the meat dishes. <laughs> and I started eating a little bit here and there. And he kept urging me, eat some meat, eat some meat. And then he says, I'm going to sh- take you to a real Argentine barbecue. And we were at NASA on the site of NASA, the grounds of NASA. And they have a barbecue there that these NASA engineers made out of the fuselage of rockets. <laughs> <laughs> they're like these big drums made out you know that thing on the nose of the rocket they mm-hmm. took that and welded it into a barbecue pit and they have a couple of those big rocket pits wow. on the grounds of NASA in Mountain View right next to Google and uh, it was freezing cold July day it was cold and really windy and they huddled around these barbecues making this Argentine barbecue and They'd been marinating the meat all day and then all these special sauces and they went through all this trouble to find the best meat. And it was a big deal and I had to eat it, of course. So that was the first time I ate, ate meat in a very, very long time. And he gave me a bite of that. And I just thought, oh, I'm really afraid I'm going to throw up or get sick or I'm probably going to vomit or I'm going to be sick after this. I, I don't have the enzymes to digest meat. It's been a really long time. And instead, it was like, whoa, it's like my brain rebooted. I got warmer. It wasn't so cold. I I felt more alert. And I mean, that was just, that was the first moment. It's the first time you eat meat again as a vegan and you haven't eaten it in a really, really long time. It's almost like losing your virginity or something. You know, it's a big (laughs) deal. Or it's like the first time you ever did a particular drug, you know. It's a... It's a mind-altering experience. And uh, so that was the first time. But it wasn't like I went, you know, started eating it every day or anything like that. It was gradual. Mm-hmm. And Can you it, tell again, I, did it, I didn't really start doing it until I saw my MRI. Okay, so that was before the MRI. 
that was before the accident mm -hmm. that required the MRI. Yeah. And then after the MRI, like, did you start eating meat like right away, or did was it like a slow process? It was a, it was several months. It was several months before. I mean, I had to deprogram myself. I went on to YouTube and I started watching um, Vegan Deterioration Channel. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And there's also somebody named Gotis, G-O-A-T-I-S. Um, no, I haven't. Uh, yeah, there, there are um, a couple of different uh, YouTubers who have channels where they just rip into vegans all the time. And I started watching that. And the more I started really observing vegans, you know, when you see Dr. Greger speak, Mm -hmm. Or you see John Robbins talk. Or you see a vegan celebrity like Cher, Madonna. You oh know, God. and you look, honestly, what has veganism done for these people? They look, they look worse so old. And worse, and they look so old, and they look so haggard. And it's not only that, but their, their mind state isn't right. You mm -hmm. know, they seem the scattered and loopy. They're sick all the time, you know, and... I, when I was watching this vegan deterioration channel, but I had to watch it, you know, maybe a hundred times I watched these YouTube videos before I started to, 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 to reprogram my brain with, and then people like Sean Baker, MD, um, the carnivore MD, um, also, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I started following them on Twitter. I started the, the recovering vegan on Twitter just so I could anonymously follow all of these doctors and influencers. And I, I built a list. If you go to Recovering Vegan, you can see I have a list of uh, medical doctors around the world. It's now about 150 doctors worldwide who are pro-keto or pro-carnivore. Mm -hmm. um, then I also have a list of nutritionists. And as I started tweeting and becoming more of an influencer on Twitter, um, a lot of these doctors and nutritionists and dietitians started messaging me, direct messaging me and giving me advice and helping me. Mm -hmm. And it was through their coaching that I, I've learned what I know today. But again, it's taken me a really long time to get to carnivore, three years. Well, it's three years of deprogramming myself, gradually eating meat again, keto, detoxing oxalates built up in my joints. I mean, it's, it, you can't go from 40 years of vegetarian to hardcore carnivore overnight. It's too much mm -hmm. of a, a shift. It's, it's a jump. And do you want to talk to us a little bit about the response that vegans had? to your like newfound meat eating practices? Oh, they hated me. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was persecuted at first. And I, in, in the first month as a recovering vegan, I went so viral that I reached three and a half million people. Wow. I mean, that was phenomenal. I was like, what? And I, all of a sudden I was getting radio interviews and I was on a rural route radio podcast and I was afraid to do these things. I mean, that was the only radio interview I did. I got many, many offers 
um, Sean Baker wanted me on his YouTube channel and all these people were approaching me and I'm like, no, 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 no. I, you know, my friends and family are, no, I can't do this. But I, I went on Rural Root Radio and, uh, I thought, well, nobody I know is ever going to listen to this because <laughs> while he was interviewing, he's like, I got to cut to a, a commercial break. And then it was like, how are your hogs doing? You know, and he had like a hog commercial <laughs> for hog farmers about hog feed or something. And then I just thought, oh my God, I didn't know that I offered to be on this, this ranchers, this hog farmers radio show. And it, it went out to hundreds of hundreds of, of stations around the United States. It was a real radio show, real syndicated radio. But, uh, you know, that initial um, burst of attention was scary. And I had death threats from vegans. I got mm -hmm. hate mail and other people in the carnivore and keto and ex-vegan community said to me, just block them. Mm -hmm. I said, don't pay attention to the block them. Because if you if you start f feeding the the hysteria, um, it, it just amplifies it. And on Facebook, anything that I wrote on Facebook would also go viral. Mm -hmm. um, I think I wrote a couple posts about my decision to eat meat again, and and I they're still floating around there in cyberspace, getting getting hate and uh, vitriol from the vegan community. I still have vegans who vegan friends won't talk to me anymore mm -hmm. it's you think i'm crazy it's a real thing like i haven't been posting a lot about agriculture lately but before i became like a political commentator slash like rabbit hole digger <laughs> i guess um i would do a lot of posts about like veganism and, and animal like welfare and stuff because like i live mm -hmm. on a farm i milk cows as a part-time job and I get oh, wow. all this hate from like vegans and they were like writing paragraphs on my con like on you can look on my old like Instagram videos from like a year ago it was so hateful like I've been called every name in the book and what I've noticed what's really interesting about the vegan community is that I know a lot of people like yourself who were re recovering vegans and mm -hmm. that their posts went viral on TikTok. And all the vegans are like, well, you didn't do it right. And, <laughs> That's like, the you're... first thing they said. They said you did it wrong. And it's like, how? <laughs> so what's the right way? You tell me yeah. what's right. Oh, you have to take a supplement. I no. said, you think I didn't take supplements? And then I would show pictures of my supplements. You know, <laughs> bags and boxes of supplements that I had. And they said, oh, well, those were the wrong ones. It's so annoying. And honestly, like this is my motto in life. If you have to take supplements to sustain your diet, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you should not have to take supplements. Like you don't have to take supplements when you eat meat. You take nothing. You eat meat. And if you're lacking in supplement, you eat liver. You know but, what like, the there's... vegans would say? They'd say that's because they give vitamin B12 to the cows. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you get the like? It makes no sense. Vitamin B twelve. You tell them. It, well, that's what I was telling my friend. Like when she was not vegan, or when she was vegan, 
I was like, where do you think you're getting your supplements? You're ge- you're getting those supplements from animals. Like, you're eating all these supplements. And her hair was falling out. She had a bald patch at the back of her so head. Was mine. When I was a vegan, I wore hair extensions. And I wore... Um, I, you know, I spent all this money on all kinds of hair treatments, and I wore hair extensions, which I would clip in to make my hair thicker. Mm-hmm. And my hair was horrible. And if you can see now that I've been eating protein. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very I thick. Have, and this is unusual for a woman my age. I mean, a lot of women, my girlfriends are all wearing wigs and hair pieces and hats, mm-hmm. and um, they have braids and things like that you know, cornrows. And, um, yeah, I mean, hair is made out of keratin. It's made out of protein. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing all these keratin treatments for their hair and pathetic. It's sad. Like, I, I don't even know how they can like make it make sense. You know, like B12, you can only get from animals and you need it. You need it. Like you need B12 to live. So do men. I I was mentioning to a male friend of mine today, you know that vitamin B12 is a precursor to testosterone. Mm-hmm. And it's better than Viagra. Yeah. Any man who's having any problems, tell him to take vitamin B12. He will be surprised how fast. Sometimes in a matter of days, it'll make a difference. Yeah. Was that friend vegan too? <laughs> No, but oh no! The thing about I'm not a vegan or I eat meat. Oh, I'm healthy. I eat meat. How much meat do they eat, though? Mm-hmm. And what kind of meat do they eat? How often do they eat meat? Yeah. And and where was that meat grown? And and what what did that animal eat? I mean, we just have lost the ancient knowledge. And also, what parts of the animal are you eating? I mean, I've been eating meat for three years, but it was only this week when I started the carnivore diet that I thought about making my own bone broth using the marrow bones. I mean, mm-hmm. I had heard in the carnivore community about the virtues of marrow. Oh, it's beautiful. It's amazing. I drink that. Well, not right now, but I do drink it regularly, like bone broth. It's the amazing it's so bone amazing it's not bone broth it's not bone broth i wasn't making it out of marrow bones i was making it out of chicken bones i was making it out of whatever bones it's mm-hmm. different when you make it out of marrow bones isn't it yeah so i make bone broth from like i don't make it like you like i don't get the marrow out i just put all the marrow in my crock pot and then i fill it with water and i throw some onions and a garlic and mm-hmm. I cook it for 24 hours, and by the time that I'm done, the marrow's gone pretty much. Like, it's mostly gone, and it's like this beautiful liquid gold. <laughs> and That's what it was. It was amazing. It was this gold, and the, the recipe told me to roast them in the oven first. Mm-hmm. So I roasted the marrow in the oven, and then all this liquid came off, and it was I couldn't believe how much fat was in the pan. In fact, it spilled and burnt me. It was, you know, hot liquid mm-hmm. fat. And I poured that, the, the carnivores on Twitter said, oh, oh, save that, save that. That's really good. And uh, uh, the tallow. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then they said, oh, and eat the marrow out of the bones. And I, I had a little bit of it, and it did kind of taste like bacon. It was pretty tasty. Caramel-y yeah. kind of taste. Sweet. And then 
but I, I made the bone broth and it was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It was, it was not like any, I mean, you can't get this in a box or in a store or a restaurant. Oh, no. You've got to make your own. No, like when I started my bone broth journey, I think it was like around a year ago. It was like slightly after my dad slaughtered the cows last year. So that was like in January and he gave away all the bones. And then I realized, oh yeah, I want to do bone broth. And he's like, well, it's too bad you didn't tell me before because I would have had all these bones. He threw Um, them away? No, no, he gave them away. We're paying $10 a pound for those bones. He gave them away. And I was like, oh, so now this year, away, gave them away. Oh, <laughs> yeah, gave no, no, didn't throw them away. He gave them away to all the other people who wanted them. And I was like, I was like, well, I want these bottles. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's like so expensive to buy them at the store because they're like eight dollars or whatever they're for like heavy. a little pack. Yeah. So, so, anyways, I was like, this year we're we're doing four calves instead of two, and two of them are mine. So I'm like, all these bones. I told my dad, I was like, listen, I want all the bones and all the beef tallow because I'm going to make soap. I'm going to sell it on Earth Cows <laughs> just for fun. And uh, I told him, like, I need all this stuff because that's another thing. Beef tallow soap is the best soap. I tried it out and I was like, this stuff, like, I can't believe I buy stuff from the store. Like, that's ridiculous. So I feel like four cows of beef tallow, it's going to be enough to, like, at least have my own stash and then sell the rest wow yeah tell entrepreneur you yeah well so vegans, just... you're gonna hate you because all the products now are vegan i hate that right? including all the clothing i mean i wore a fur coat the other day to a holiday party and i had to go and put it back in my car <laughs> I got some, and I said, I bought this at Goodwill. It's like, not like I killed the animal. I mean, it was, it happened, you know, almost a century ago that, that yeah. somebody bought the coat the first time I'm recycling it, but it didn't matter. They were very upset. And oh yeah. I bought leather it... jackets I can't wear anywhere in LA or San Francisco now. You can't wear leather anymore. You can't wear leather shoes. You can't wear fur. Can't wear cashmere. Yeah, it's the vegan craze is insane. It's not as insane in my area, so I don't really see it much, but I have tasted it. I have tasted it because so where I met my friend who was vegan, there's like two one. She was a like vegan like employee. And then there was like this horse owner that was vegan. It was so funny because she would lock up her horses in like the box stall 23 hours in the day. Okay. She would let them out only to train. And then she had the audacity to tell me that my cows should get more grass time or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever. Like, and I was like, you lock your horse 23 hours in the day and you have all these leather saddles because they're the best. And then you tell me don't eat steak. Like, are you joking? Like, I'm going to eat twice as much steak just for you saying that. I was so annoyed with that girl and she she tried to convince me to go to get my cat to be vegan. I'd be like I told her like my cat's gonna die if she doesn't eat meat. Like are you joking? <laughs> like it's bad enough the food that I feed my cat, which is kibble, like I can't do like vegan food. Like you, cats die because of that. 
But yeah, it's... My cat wouldn't go for it. Well, my cat... I don't know. Would you, sorry? The commercial cat food, I mean, that's another thing where you've seen this revolution now where you see raw pet food or pet yeah. food that is grain-free because our pets are getting the same diseases that we get mm -hmm. because they're obligate carnivores and they've been getting all kinds of other stuff yeah. that causes the same diseases that humans get. I mean, is there something evil behind this? It's not a conspiracy. It's just called business as usual. I think there's low-key conspiracy. Yeah, it's profitable. Like, there's many reasons. The reason, I think there's a few reasons. The first one is they want to use climate change to get us to buy into their plant monopoly. They want to use it to control our minds because, you know, we are we can't be controlled. We eat too much meat. But, like, the people who are vegan, like, <laughs> I would bet you a million dollars I could literally list every single thing in their life because they're all the same. You know, they're all the same. They're, like... They're going down for, like, the Democrats, you know, like, they're all the Twitter. I, I think, whenever I think of San Francisco, I just think of Twitter and, like, all the Twitter employees. <laughs> and they're all the same. They're all vegan. They're all, like, in the LGBTQ community. They were all riding for Joe Biden, you know, like, give them a diversity quota, and they're, like, super happy. Like, we're oppressed well, what, feminists. I think like, what people need to understand and this is coming as someone who's been in the media my whole life mm -hmm. my whole career newspapers and tv stations are the blogs of the billionaires yeah they have blogs they have media they just have more money and they can afford to hire a staff of reporters to do the reporting and create really great professional content mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the Huffington Post, Ariana Huffington, she's got money. She created her own blog. She has her own newspaper, Bill Gates. He has MSNBC. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, who bought the Washington Post? Jeff Bezos. That's his blog. Mm -hmm. Who has CNN? Ted Turner. You know, so yep. who has Virgin Entertainment? Same guy who owns Virgin Airlines. I mean, it's just a wealthy person's media channel mm -hmm. and we have to always remember when we watch the blogs of a billionaire is that they've you know they bought that channel so they can promote a certain point of view and Elon Musk bought Twitter <laughs> from somebody else who was using it to promote his point of view and now Musk has his own point of view yeah. And he, this, he's just one of the very, very richest men, if not the richest on earth. And he's like, I'm not buying the Washington Post. <laughs> I'm buying Twitter. <laughs> and then every all the leftists, to me, the peak of this was like when the people from Washington Post, like Taylor Lorenz, I don't know if you know who Taylor Lorenz is, but she's famous in the right wing mm. community because she's so ridiculous. Like. <laughs> She's just so ridiculous. It's it's impossible to beat her. But anyways, so she was crying and crying and crying and crying about Elon Musk getting Twitter. And I'm like, who's your boss? Jeff Bezos? You know, the bald guy that tries to outdo Musk every chance he gets? <laughs> like, come on, you know? That's why I like independent journalists like 
Um, I can't even think mm-hmm. of some off the top of my head, but like, I just like in, independent journalists, like even left wing mm-hmm. journalists or right wing <laughs> or whichever, um, because they're the ones who are doing the honest reporting and they don't have an agenda. Like most of the media are owned by the same people, <laughs> the same group of people, you know, and yeah, they're just scheming in the back door. I, I think they are personally like. <laughs> I'm like almost Alex Jones. I don't know. I was a mainstream. I was a member of the mainstream media. I was trained to be a a member of the mainstream media. I wrote for the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. I was just doing my job. I mean, an editor or a publisher would say, write this story. Go talk to this person. Mm -hmm. Then I would do what they asked me to write. And if I didn't do what they asked me to write, I would get what's called a kill fee. They'd kill mm-hmm. my story. And they'd say, thank you. Um, we like your story, but we're not going to run it. So we'll give you half. They pay you half, which is a kill fee. And after you get a couple of kill fees, you start realizing, well, if I don't write exactly what they want me to write, I won't make any money. Mm-hmm. Or I'll lose my job. And, you know, after a while, you just realize this is a job and I'm here to... Yeah, you know, write what they want me to write. And uh, after you write it, an editor or team of editors and fact checkers goes over the story and they completely rewrite it. I mean, frequently it bore almost no resemblance to what I originally wrote. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a fun job. I mean, I love being a reporter. I love being a journalist, but don't kid yourself. It's, it's, um, you know, you're working for someone who has a particular point of view one way or the other, and, and they're using you to help them tell that story. I mean, the beautiful mm-hmm. thing about podcasting, TikTok, Twitter, all of this is we, we all have access equally to these incredible channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love having my podcast. Like, I've only, I'm only like a few episodes deep, and I like took a winter break. I was like Christmas. I was like, oh, I don't feel like filming any podcast, so I didn't really release any. But I like it because you can have such interesting conversations with random mm-hmm. people, like you know, with like different people of different point of views. Like I was talking about like Balenciaga the other day with my friend, and like made medical assistance in dying which is a big problem in Canada right now. And, like, you can do, like, different topics or you can even just, like, have someone on to talk about their life. Like, it's just so fun, I find. I just love having it. But we can wrap yeah. things up. Uh, thank you so much for having me or having you on on my podcast. And uh, where can we find you? You can find me at Recovering Vegan or it's actually Vegan Recovering on Twitter. Uh, also on Instagram and Facebook. And, okay, so it's all uh, under Recovering Vegan? Yes, or The Recovering Vegan on Instagram, Recovering Vegan on Twitter, Recovering Vegan on Facebook. Um, I'm starting some other channels and a blog and a podcast soon and working oh, on a cool. book. That's yeah. awesome. But thank you so and much if for everybody having everybody follows me on Twitter, please. I will have 10,000 followers by the end of the day. I'm very yeah. close to 10,000, so it's really exciting. <laughs> so. Yeah, so thank you so much for having, for being on this podcast. And 
Yeah.